Hi, and welcome back to the AMPS podcast. My name's Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And I'm sorry to say that uh, for this episode of the podcast, you find us recording remotely again due to the travel restrictions in the UK, which also means that we haven't been able to get out on location to record anything interesting for this episode of the podcast. Uh, But the sound that we began this episode with, and which you're listening to uh, underneath us now, is an excerpt from the sound design of a film called Saint Maud. St Maud's one of the few films uh, to make it into cinemas this year, and deservedly so. It's been really well received and critically praised, um, and even picked up a number of nominations already since having its limited cinema run earlier this year. Uh, It's hopefully going to get another cinema run when cinemas reopen again. Uh, But in the meantime, we were lucky enough to catch up with the sound designer, Paul Davis, and also the director, Rose Glass, and they talked together about their collaboration um, and offer some creative insights on the film. Uh, In fact, we get into it in some detail, so we just want to make a spoiler warning here up front and just let you know that if you haven't seen the film, this podcast might spoil some of the key details for you. So please go and see the film first if you're interested and then come back and have a listen. Yeah, we can really recommend this film. Uh, We both thoroughly enjoyed it and we also enjoyed the conversation that we had with Rose and Paul where Owen and I were sort of passengers really because it was evident that Rose and Paul have a real natural rapport. It's a really interesting discussion that they had about their collaboration uh, both together and with the composer and with other members of the crew. They also discussed the kind of limitations of working to a relatively small budget for a feature film and also having to deliver within fairly tight deadlines. Um, and yet they produced um, uh, an excellent soundtrack to, to a wonderful film. So it is a really interesting conversation, which we recorded very recently via Zoom. Just wanted to start off, before I forget to say it, just to say again, just thank you so much for taking the time to come and um, talk to us about the film. Definitely been looking forward to this since we saw it together in the cinema. Yeah. in between lockdowns which was you know a very pleasant reprieve oh nice you actually saw it in the cinema yeah yeah, yeah we went to the everyman in bristol i think that might was that i think that was the first film i watched after lock, lockdown actually you know in a cinema oh, that's yeah it was great yeah i think we've got like a it, it's weird because we obviously fewer people going to the cinema but i think it's sort of balanced out by we're able to have quite a much longer runtime than we would have done otherwise so hopefully when they open up again lockdown too if that happens hopefully we'll be in them again for a bit. Oh, okay. Is it going to be screened again? Is it? It's going to be Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be good. I think I think cinemas are planning to, some of the independent ones are planning to reopen, from what I can gather, if, mm. if they're allowed to after the 2nd of December. And so many other big releases that would be coming out have sort of shunted to next year. So it's kind of yeah. just us going, hey. <laughs> and apparently, yeah. it's about, apparently it's being released, or, I mean, and things might change you never know but at the moment i think it's meant to come out in spain on christmas day so it's going to be like a christmas movie <laughs> oh great <laughs> wow die hard and saint Maud, two uh <laughs> yeah. unexpected christmas movies oh I'm, sorry i'm going i'm going off on a tangent but um paul there's a spanish trailer for Maud now and it's full of dubbed in spanish of course which i showed to my spanish flatmate and he was kind of like of course that we do that through all the films but it's so weird 
Yeah. 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 They, act, they sound quite good though, I thought, the actors, but yeah, that was a weird first for me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, congratulations on getting a cinema re- release in 2020, as you say, for that's monumental in itself, but it must be um, quite satisfying to have this perspective now and see people watching the film around the world. And I didn't realise how I was more relieved than I anticipated feeling. I think it just sort of, it felt like it was never going to come out at some point. I don't know. Yeah. yeah okay. we, we, originally we were meant to come out sort of April um, in America and May here. And then, you know, lockdown happened. But um, mm. at that point I was like really stressed and nervous about the whole thing that coming out. But I think in a way now that we've had lockdown at this point, I'm now just got over the nerves a bit because now it's just like, yeah, let's just get it out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we loved it. We thought it was great. Yeah, um, really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, really excited to talk about it. And obviously it's been really well received critically, so um, which is great, you know, um, seeing Komodo Mayo talk about it on their show and others. Uh, so, yeah, it's, um, it's really nice to be able to talk to uh, a filmmaker and a sound designer together about that whole collaboration, you know, and get some insight. Lucky us. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one of the ways I wanted to just kind of start that conversation, um, Rose, if you don't mind, was just asking how you might describe the film. Well, I guess on the, on the surface sort of story-wise, it's about this young living nurse who goes to go care for her newest patient. And she's got quite a strange relationship with God. And she thinks that she's been sent to this new woman, to this new patient by God to save her soul before she dies. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, psychological, psychological horror film, I guess. And it's about a lot about um, you know, loneliness, I guess, social alienation, mental health, delusions, faith, a lot of fun kind of stuff, I guess. <laughs> I'm really bad at saying what it's about. No, that was great. That yeah, was that's, great. that's pretty, pretty bang on, I'd say, yeah. The, and those themes really came through to me, that, that sense of loneliness, the kind of tragedy of it. Mm. Um, and it sounds like such a downer, a kind of like, um, it's, I mean, some of it's quite bleak, but um, yeah, hope, hopefully like the way that we, we, the style that we made it in, and the sort of execution and the sound has a huge part to do with that. It's quite, uh, it's a small intimate story, but we tried to sort of make it in a fairly epic cinematic fold. Yeah, it's very, um, it's very dynamic as well. You know, there's, there's really lovely kind of passages of quiet, you know, and isolation. And then, and then when, the, when the loudness happens, it's kind of really powerful and effective. So how did you two first sort of start working together? And what was, did you have any strong ideas in your mind, Rose, about the sound of the film before you started, started talking to Paul? Um, well, in terms of how we, we started working together, we met when I was a student at a National Film and Television School doing the directing course there. And Paul was tutoring some students at the time. Do you still tutor there? I can't remember, no. Uh, occasionally, yes. I, I think I've done some Zoom workshops this year. So oh, yeah. yes, I do. Yes, I still teach a National Film and Television School. Yes, yeah, so I was doing some. Yes, yeah, so I happened to sort of. I was remember I was tutoring some sound sound design students in Rose's year, and that normally includes debriefs in the cutting room of films and the work in progress. And Rose was there as well as the editor. So that was that was ju- during your first year or graduation films. I would have been in there, sort of around and deep various debriefs as well so I didn't tutor Rose directly because the direction student but I would she would have been involved within the um the debriefs uh, of this during the sound design process yeah I was working with Rob Podcastle for my year I can't remember if, if we had 
tutorials with you or not. But yeah, we would have met sort of around then. Yes, um, that's right. I, I think I was probably probably going to films, national films for quite a lot during your the, you yeah. know, the couple of years you were you were at the, you were there. Exactly, and and you know, obviously I'd heard about Paul's other works of all Lynn Ramsey stuff, and it's like, oh wow, so cool. And you said some nice things about my um, my grad film room fifty five. Um, so I guess what, yeah. So and then by the time it came to actually making Maud, which I think that about about four years later, four years after graduating, was when we were shooting. Um, and although I assume you know, Paul, I think we teamed up before then like during prep but you know when it came to wondering who to do the sound design I think that was sort of you know first first port of call um so I was really happy that you came on board and yeah I mean in terms of ideas for the sound design uh yeah definitely I try I mean I like I said the film from the very beginning I knew that the sort of style that I wanted to tell the film in was very kind of heightened and bold and I guess the sound's particularly important in it for me, I guess I was trying to sort of pin it down, but because, the, you know, the film's like a very, in a way, like a really weird, intimate sort of character study of this main woman, Maud, and, you know, she's got some weird stuff in her past, and a lot of it's about uh, analysing, I guess, her grip on reality. So we're sort of very intimately in this woman's space, but a, a lot of her inner thoughts are kind of kept secret from us, like the extent to which she's communicating with God. And that's sort of where a lot of the kind of tension arises. And so aside from more of his performance, the main actress, the sound design and the, and is really one of the main ways of getting into that sort of psychological space. So I knew that I wanted the sound, I guess, to sort of, and as you know, this was a similar discussions to what I've been having with Ben, the cinematographer in terms of the visual look, but everything was, meant to be doing everything it could to reflect Maud's kind of subjective psychological state, I guess, which is probably mm -hmm. what it does in loads of films, but yeah. So, uh, yeah, so even when we're being sort of like restrained on the surface and sort of just keeping the camera quite calm, I sort of wanted the sound to be one of the areas where we can sort of really play with tension and that was the approach, I guess, going in, roughly. Yeah. Does that yeah. sound right, Paul? <laughs> Yes, it does. I mean, I think I remember sort of, as with these things as well, once you stop, went into production, obviously, there's, there's, it's difficult to then sort of having conversations Then we usually have to wait until they are the other side. But I remember conversations we had um, during, uh, you know, before that, you know, when, when we had initial meetings about before I, you know, when we sort of, when I came, came on board and you sort of described to me, I think one of the references was uh, Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yes. So I think those sort of film references, perhaps there's a couple of references. And I think for me, reading the script and the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to do, because I knew Rose's, uh, I knew, knew Rose's, a couple of Rose's, you know, her graduation film and the first year film I'd seen. So I knew that, you know, that she was a very interesting filmmaker and sort of very, uh, those uh, film school films were very memorable. And I, um, I remember the, reading the script and this, the sound sort of, for me, leaped off the page. Because Rose, you know, had wrote the script as well as directed. So, and so those ideas somehow, and I can't, I don't think there was actually sound, sounds were probably described in there, but it somehow it was implicit within, for me, within the writing of it. And I could see that it was a very, potentially very powerful film. So it was, and when I saw the first cut, then I realized that you had been able to sort of achieve what you'd written on the page. And it was, You'd also done a, done a lot of work in the sound in the, during the picture editor with Mark Towns, a picture editor. You had they had done a lot of sound work together, 
for the picture cut. And uh, that was, so your intentions were very clear. So by the time I, I started formally on the sound design process, I, th- you know, I thought it was sort of, it was a matter of discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'll be delighted. <laughs> yes, no, I think, no, absolutely. No, is you know, that I think Mark's, Mark's work that he put in the, uh, you know, the sound within the pitch reading process is an incredibly important part process because it was absolutely crystal clear about, for me, where, you know, the shape of it was important. I think, you know, you know we have a sort of within the house, we have those, um, in, you know, the silence, the silence, we just hear some distant waves and we hear the ticking clock. And then, sort of, as you say, that we have the dynamics when the events happen within the film, the mm. sort of the moored events. Uh, it's not quite supernatural, are they? I don't, well, maybe they are. I don't know. There's always that ambiguity. There's always a possibility, I think, and I'm convinced even within this film, there's always a possibility that actually it could be real. Yeah. 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 That's good to you thought about the the Mark stuff, because as in, you know, how the sound came to you once we finished the edit, because, yeah, that was obviously the intention. It, it felt like we, me and Mark had sort of obviously tried to, where possible, put in kind of the suggestion. Yeah, uh, uh, like, uh, yes. Thing. I think and, the key, key moment, the foghorn yeah. motif as well, I think we ended up using a different foghorn, but that idea was used on, on, on the stairs, and also Adam's music, there was a lot of Adam's music within the cut, wasn't there? Quite a lot, yeah, and he did a thing where we, um, this is Adam, the composer, who um, is his first film, and he, mm. I sort of, want, I, I wanted where possible, I guess, you know, obviously the this, this score and the sound to, to sort of intermingle and, and work. So, there are, so he gave us sort of like a little, me and Mark, a little kind of library of stems of different kind of percussive things and drones and stuff. So we, could, we started dropping a couple of those in as well to help kind of shape things. And then he based his cues off that. But um, mm. It's interesting, but, but you know, there are some scenes like, uh, I think initially the scene of Maud kind of, there's a scene where she goes up the stairs and it's one of the first times we see her kind of feeling God sort of moving through her. So she, mm-hmm. the lights will start pulsing and she's having this strange sort of orgasmic kind of uh, episode, I guess. And I think I'd always assumed that that would be a sort of a musical cue and we sort of tried out different things. Um, but in the end, that ended up just being pretty much yeah. Well, we had some sound sound ideas in there, like the foghorn, which me and Mark had put in. Um, and then I think we actually ended up. It just became a big sort of sound moment. Less is more, I guess. It's interesting that you say that you in- initially thought of that as being a music cue because the thing that struck me about that first like episode, if you like, is the sound design was actually quite melodic still. Yeah, I, th- I think there's like one, I think there is like one element that Adam gave us, but it sounds, it, it sort of, it felt like a sort of more of an atmosphere kind of. Yeah. Yeah, you have this tinkling sort of bell-like sound and the episode yeah. happens. And I think that what I wanted to sort of, you know, lead you gently into the fact is we should be sort of like, because I think you see her face distort and there's a VFX, very subtle VFX you don't quite, you know, and it's sort of, it should be a, a small hint about what. Yeah. yeah. What is to come? The gods tinkles. That was that was good. Yeah. The gods tinkle. The yes, gods the voices. Tinkles. And the gods whispers. The god whispers as well. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, these could be sort of we're playing almost with tropes or horror tropes. As I, I don't think we ever thought about it as being a horror film. Mm-hmm. I know it might be marketed in some ways like that now, but I don't think when we were working on it, we saw it as a a horror film per se or a genre film. Obviously, it had elements. It's got elements of those films in. There's ref- there references to Rosemary's baby or repulsion but there you know but uh yes i think it's very much a character study of a character yeah isn't it? yeah 
and that's his power which one of the things that struck me actually talking about that scene was the the strength of the performance and i i didn't realize there was vfx elements but it feels almost I'm giving away right now. Yeah, there slightly, <laughs> but it's okay. I, you know, it caught me then. I'm sure when people see it, they feel the same. Um, it was such a captivating performance. Mm. That I that love must... that scene. I'm really happy. I mean, it's sort of it's um, it, there's all sort of happy happy accidents in some ways because you know I think scripted it was meant to be that she sort of just walks up the stairs kind of as normal. Maybe the lights start flickering and then she was going to have just one very sort of sudden shuddering godgasm at the top of the stairs. But then because of scheduling stuff we were running behind, we had to do the whole scene in one take. And there was meant yeah. to be different before and after orgasm makeup and she was already in the post stuff. Anyway, boring technical but like reasons, but then we ended up having to adapt a way to do it all in one take and have her be in this flushed thing. So that's why we got to sort of have it slowly as she was coming up the stairs. So the whole sort of like pace and mood of the scene, I think, um, shifted a bit from the script which is good and then again you know i had one idea about having a music cue there but then once we started playing with all the different sound elements like um like paul's saying we sort of had the foghorns but then also whispering behind the walls and breathing and her kind of stroking the walls and there's also so many sort of delicate sounds i guess which would be easy to overpower it, i guess and then i don't know and then you just sort of use the the because the lights were sort of dimming and fading like we shot that as it as it was it's not effects or anything so then that just became a sort of pulsing it, it yeah. strikes me as that there was a lot to build off visually really which i think is interesting and uh, paul i imagine that really kind of helps yes there have... was and i think you know obviously one has to sort of say you know i i think i was able to sort of i think you know i, I think i think our sort of final sort of meeting before i started working on it to you know when i was finally hired was actually you were actually shooting already in the house in holloway i think and I came up to met you. You probably don't remember because you were so so busy. I think I, I think yeah. Mark was. I think Mark Towns was directing Second Unit that day. I seem oh, to oh, remember. Yeah. I came up and had a managed to capture a brief word. I met Oliver and Andrea, and I oh, sort yeah, of had you. Were, yeah, and you sort of were shooting then. And uh, I met Simon Farmer, of course, who's the local yeah, yeah, yeah. production sound mixer there. And we sort of thought so. Simon did a great job. Obviously, it was a found the tracks yeah, yeah. that Simon recorded on location were a, were a great foundation, especially recording that silence as well and that quietness so we want good clean uh, dialogue recording so we, i don't think we did very little technical adr i don't think i think we did obviously we did more, more quite a bit of additional uh, story adr mm-hmm. and, yeah i really uh, like that it was the first time i'd sort of had any experience of doing of like having sort of like crowd and adr days yeah there are a couple of days where we had to get the actors in just to sort of read do lines but not many at all but then i went in for the day in the studio where they just got lots of um extras or sort of voice actors to just do sort of the crowd, crowd session yes oh it's so yeah. much fun um yeah they were written they were, they were fantastic actors like all the all the kind of like panicking crowd that you can hear at the end of the film yeah that's one of, oh, i'd love that spoiler that's, don't don't listen if you haven't seen it already but um, yeah yeah, yeah. yes don't, don't give the game away it's difficult yeah. all those panicking <laughs> performances that you can just hear off screen were just these these guys who came in for the crowd ADR and they were brilliant. Did you use any of that? Because in some of the sound design elements, there's spoke, there's kind of whispered voices and things like that. Is that stuff that you that you'd already created, Paul, or did you use any I, of the stuff? The stuff no, it's actually stuff I'd already created, and I think mm. from my own sort of sound. I think because it's it's an interesting one. The whispers is such a horror trope, and it's easy to 
you know, everyone's very aware of falling into cliche, but you're playing with it as well. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I yeah. think that I think I was quite, I quite pleased is quite successful. I think the utilization of it. But I think that mm. when Rose and I started working together, um, you know, I think we had about four or five meetings where I was working from home as sound editors are doing these days, and Rose came out to also Wilds of Rittmansworth where I was working from <laughs> from London from various meetings. So we were able to sort of work quite closely together, and quite, we worked quite early on. But, you know, within a couple of weeks of sound design starting, it's sort of always a nerve-wracking process for sound editors to show their work in an early stage because it's, <laughs> but it's yeah. sort of, yeah, it's a matter of build, you know, building that relationship. And that's, we obviously, with us, you know, we, for the first time, you're start, starting showing the actual concrete work. And that's, yeah. and you want to sort of, I always want to try and push things at that moment as well and sort of want to see, from the reaction of working with the director, what what are they responding to? And it was very clearly, you know, early on that I think Rose and I were thinking along very similar lines, very compatible lines, and she was encouraging me to yeah. push things even further, which was great. Mm. I yeah. think that was uh, that was obviously a fantastic position to be in. Yeah, I remember there being sort of a, particularly the first meeting. I could sort of tell that there was sort of I can't remember maybe the party scene or some of the more you know sort of. Uh, bigger sort of more dynamic scenes you're like now this might be a bit over the top for you this might be a bit too much and I'd be like no <laughs> brilliant <laughs> that was that was me yes <laughs> yes <laughs> me being too apologetic but no it's uh, but that's good to know that you're working with a director who's then giving you permission to then takes they're handing you over the baton and you can take it and then run with it and create something you know yourself as well and then bring a contribution and also working with you know directors which is always great is that you can Work, you know, they like to be surprised as well, which I think Rose did as well. So there's new things turning up, I think, which is which is very important. Yeah, totally. And like, well, I was going to say with the the sort of playing with uh, and being aware of sort of like tropes and sort of um, you know horror tropes, I guess, and, and whispering. But one of the other, so one of the others, I guess, is that sort of slightly cliche thing of like sort of white noise, I guess, after you know after something shocking has happened. And I think so. There's a bit where Maud's I don't want to spoil it, where she's where she's done something awful. Um, at, towards the end of the film and it's kind of her sort of um, floating home afterwards sort of in shock and I think me and Mark put in a sort of like white noise just like it was a tinnitus sound you know the high-pitched ringing sound yes yeah. yeah, that's right it's, which would you hear after sort of bomb explosions or piss gunshots whatever or horror moments that sort of ringing in the ears sound yes exactly um, which is and it was so and then so we paused both out we need to find a way of sort of having that effect you know that sort of feeling but it, do it in an interesting way and then I came back the next and then the next time and I went away for a week or two and the next time I came back to see you and have another pass through the cut you played me that scene there's just this like weird fucking noise <laughs> what is that it's like you said I think I've tried to make it the most unpleasant noise that I can yeah it's this sort of like green sort of metallic it was a, it was a really it was a really ugly but for the technical this is a amps podcast it's really we're using yeah. an FM. FM synthesis is really sort of ugly, sort of like high pitched frequency feedback sound, but tr having the same idea as a ringing in the ears, but a different iteration yeah. of it. So it sort of felt fresh. Yeah. yeah. And then I think, and then I think we ended up, so we, you created that sound for that scene, but then I think we ended up sort of like, is it, there's a bit of that in the beginning, in the opening scene, in the hospital. There is actually as well, but that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the joy of working, you know, collab the collaboration is that, you know, yeah, that's great. Let's put it there. So, so as an idea that I wouldn't even think about. So we then, once we started working together, we could then start bouncing off each other, which is a really important, you know, 
rather than you know as, as you're sitting sort of in the sound design room just coming up with sound design but having but having that feedback and having that response and that sort of ideas and, the, and the third ideas being produced by you know from 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 other ideas that that's the beauty and value of it and because it was a very short period of time comparatively i think we had being a yeah. low budget film we had about we had about five weeks of sound design yeah. period before the mix and the mix was um mix was andrew sturk uh, did did a wonderful absolutely wonderful mix andrew yeah. and regular so andrew and i worked together regularly andrew actually uh, also was a dialogue editor of the film which made it sort of quite sort of a small team and quite sort of cohesive and then uh, rose worked with andrew on during the adr time as well and there's certain ideas which came up within the adr which i don't know whether we want to talk about really yeah i was i was gonna say the 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 thing that you're saying about sort of the uh work process and being able to be quite responsive and sort of fluid and collaborative and slightly going off one but the whole the whole sort of post-production and the whole sort of making of the film uh was a bit like that there were quite a few scenes which i only wrote during the edit um and then and then we sort of incorporated later so it was it was great to be able to sort of keep doing that um and yeah one of these new scenes that we that i sort of wrote during the edit so we'd shot so all that were, by the time there, you were got, there, were, there were a couple of pickups weren't there sort of well, yeah it was kind of pickups but there was sort of there were a couple of like whole quite big <laughs> big scenes which wouldn't have existed before we shot the film including the one where it's basically the only time we, we properly hear god speaking to maud mm. um and you know it was it's kind of later in the film and, and once we had it in the edit it just felt like there was a sort of a beat missing where Maud needed to kind of um uh question you know question her faith again and what she's doing and God needs to kind of give her a really un unambiguous sign and sort of tip her over the edge to what she ends up doing at the end of the film then we had to come up with what God looks like and sounds like so we ended up using this cockroach Nancy because we we used her in a different scene and cut her out but so it's like okay great she looks like a cock he looks like a cockroach and then the voice was, um, uh, well, Morbeth Clark, who plays Maud, is, is Welsh, as you might guess. And um, I'd been listening to her speak Welsh on the phone to her sister during the shoot and, and sort of thought, what a beautiful sounding language. So we, mm. and, and it's nice circularity of the themes because obviously that's still her voice in her head. So it's Morbeth's voice saying the lines and then sort of brought down. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it was, it was that was recorded. So it's actually Morbeth pitched down. And Andrew yeah. had the, had the um, uh, sort of uh, had the idea about using a sort of uh, actually I, I will I forget the name of the microphone now, but a very sort of um, a microphone that had a very high frequency response. So when the pitch was dropped, it would then we preserve the character integrity of the voice. Yeah. It wouldn't so because it's always again that's always you risking another cliche. It's just slowing a pitching. It was, so it's pitched down as well, so the speed was kept yeah. as well. So it's actually her own voice talking to her. But I don't know whether whether the audience will recognize it consciously or subliminally or it's just yeah, another layer of meaning yeah, yeah. consciously but it makes a great one for q a's and stuff afterwards yeah, yeah. and did you and and did you do a similar thing with um jennifer l in uh, towards the end because her her voice changes at one point towards the end of the film and is, was that her again yes, that, 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 yeah. was, that was yeah. that was that she's yeah. pitched we played around there there well with very, sort of, i think i think we worked quite a lot in the mix on that scene didn't we mm. sort of yeah. um, referring to well that's saying the content of yeah, that sure. scene. but there uh, been i think there was there was elements in there and i think that was a scene where we did actually row back a little bit i seem yeah. to recall from where from from uh, you know full on horror, yeah. we dialed it back. We dialed it back from the horror tropes a little bit there, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. It was really fun, that but we certainly were exploring a lot with that scene, and 
we sort of had time as well in the mix as well to come back and sort of review and do changes and sort of, you know, refinements as well. I think even the God voice when, when Ward speaks, so we ended up, I think we, both, both of those moments actually maybe with the voices were a couple of the few instances where we probably did try going even bigger and then maybe rein back a little bit. No, it's a really interesting insight because, I mean, as I always said before, just the fact that you get so much emotional performance through those heavily treated voices mm. really helps it to work. And like that voice of God, it feels very intimate. I mean, that's really interesting that it's actually her voice. Mm. You've got that sort of direct literally very direct relationship, you know, a voice in her head. I'm glad um, that that's the word that comes across, because, yeah, we sort of wanted it to be a bit like it was sort of whispering right in your ear. So that's... Yeah. But it's also kind of interesting um, to use Welsh. Yeah. That it's not familiar enough for most people, including myself, even though I'm from South Wales, that you identify more with the tone of the voice than the words, which is, yeah. you know, it gives it that extra power. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, more of a saying that all of her family like delighted to to be representing Welsh language. Although she, I got, I think I wrote most of the lines for that bit, the Welsh stuff, like on a on just on a bit of paper in her kitchen because we had to record it just as tempers first on a on a phone. And so she was like sort of trying to translate all this. She's like, well, all the Welsh I know is a bit colloquial, so I don't really know how to say all these grand. Then we had to get to translate it. <laughs> language. Yes, because you had te- you had tempted it up in the temp mix. You just did say so you just did a, a quick yeah, recording yeah. on your iPhone and then slowed that down in the avid just to temp it up. So it's a proof of concept. Yes, like make this better. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I think we do spend a lot of the time. For me, what's interesting is in a film where you spend a lot of time within the character's head, the POV, yeah. because a lot of it is from a POV. Then sort of you know, not to have a film that you want all those small movements. Like, and the photo movements are going to be extremely important as well, mm. as well as also obviously the big set pieces with fireworks or, you know, slow down voices of God. If you want, there's other moments as well. And the turning, I think people have mentioned sort of the photo work and the turning, you know, the cutting of the paper mm. as well. And sort of the, those details as well, I think are critically important. And for me, that's what the best of sort of films, you know, when the reference, the Polanski reference, that's the best of the films of the 60s was a very... Rather than a very multi-layered soundtracks, a very selective use of sound, but the sound is somehow very powerful for being sort of heightened and isolated, rather than sort of the you know the contemporary, what I would call a Hollywood more Hollywood approach, where everything is multi-layered mm. within film soundtracks. This is it was interesting to be able to do work on a film that's it could be spare when it needed to be, mm. but then sort of earned its right earned its sort of big moments as well. There is a sort of confidence in it as well because you know I I've, I've it's been interesting watching it sort of been since finishing the film and having it released having seen it in a few different screening rooms and uh, and the, the the perils of everything always sounding a bit different everywhere you go but the, I'm I'm always so nervous for the first kind of twenty minutes because the the opening is is pretty sort of like loud dynamic but then there's a full like almost twenty minutes where it's it's very kind of um, minimal and, and restrained and a lot of like Paul said just picking up on quite tactile things and um I don't know knocking and breaths and mm. all this sort of stuff and yeah it, I think a lot of the tension just kind of comes from that and then hopefully it sort of there's a then towards the end of the film there's increasingly regular and more um extravagant kind of moments of catharsis and kind of you know paying off I guess but it's a uh, yeah always for 20 minutes it's because it feels like that's the 20 minutes as well that it takes people to either kind of get into the film or you know I, I think it seems to be a bit of a marmite one people either sort of like it or, or they don't um 
And so it's, I don't know, those first 20 quiet minutes, I'm always very like, ah. <laughs> but like you said, it's, it's, it's very European, if I may put it that way, <laughs> which is that sort of very, you know, has a stillness as well, which of, yeah. of the classic, classic European cinema as well. That's, I mean, that's sort of... Well, I think it's, it's particularly with, the, with what you were talking about, about older films and, you know, yeah. like we said earlier, it's quite an obvious example of just these very quite sparse sounds. I think I sort of realised that like the most, the, maybe the thing that made me feel nervous throughout those 20 minutes is the fact that, you know, there obviously are sounds cutting through all of that but it tends to be quite sort of staccato-y kind of yeah once and you don't have the sort of comfort of sort of i don't know there's something particularly in a cinema maybe like once you have a sound system where you know there's like sort of more atmos and it's all the sort of like enveloping you a bit more sort of makes you takes gets you off the hook a little bit but um just without that kind of sense and all just feeling a bit it's it, it puts you on edge doesn't it yes. that silence that it, it, there's something about it which is disturbing which i think I think it's very interesting and very, you know, very useful because I think then when you, you earn, as I said before, you earn sort of those moments when you do, you have got somewhere to go dynamically in terms of your dynamics as well. Yeah, but there's you've got there's breathing room, isn't there, in those quieter moments, there's space. But then also you're not, it's not like running themes of horror or whatever. There's no dark winds and all that kind of, you know, it's just kind of, there is a, it's isolation, think, but it's kind of quite, kind of quite a comfortable isolation. What we need to achieve is that this is, I think for me, a lot of some horror films will fall down is that, yes, we're creating tropes and saying, this is just the story. We've got horror winds and we've got these things. We're saying this is real. So mm. when horrible moments in, which is, I think the famous, uh, um, you know the drawing pins yeah. <laughs> sequence as well. You know the the uh, those, those sequences, those moments. You earn those moments because people really feel, oh yeah. no, she's doing it, and they're caring about it. They care about it as a character, and yeah. I think that's and it's and the pins quite book. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. But then the, the, there's kind of um, the scene in the pub, which which is actually quite a loud scene, isn't it? But it's very, again, it's just very re real and plausible. It's not... Yes, yeah, um, so that's the more when, when she starts, exactly like, and then sort of throughout that bit, it gets increasingly, like, you know, very dynamic by the end of, of that mm. out that she has. But um, it's also when the character is sort of going out into the real world. So mm. that was a nice thing to sort of, for me, to sort of play with is how sound it works in all the different spaces of the film. Yeah. You know, a lot of this tension early on is, is taking place in, in Amanda's house, this very intimate location, but there's a sort of clarity to it. But then every, we wanted it to be that every time she goes out in the general public, basically, um, it feels very kind of chaotic and quite mm. overwhelming because she's somebody who finds the real world. Yes, I, I think that from, right from the per book, the first time she walks past the amusement arcade and sees yeah, like the really sky, I think it's the first scene as mm. well. That's, that's really interesting because that's one of the questions I wanted to ask is about achieving that balance. And I'm quite curious, was that, were you watching the film through as a whole and then just kind of making decisions on the overall balance of the sound? Or was that never a problem, you know, moving from these very quiet uh, scenes to then like the second act, I guess, is it feels very busy, uh, like going to these busy spaces and then you get back to a very quiet space and a more intimate. So was that ever a challenge to kind of move between or did that always just flow very well? I seem to remember we'd, we'd, we did quite a little bit of work on that in the mix in terms of how much sound we should hear from in Maud's flat from outside as well. We, we worked quite a bit in, outside. We record again in crowd session, we recorded voices. I think there's an argument in a couple of places off screen and sort of as conversations in a hallway. And then there's other sounds coming from the flats. And then 
reducing it down from there. For me, I think the SpaceX structure is implicit within the story and then the edit as well. Maud's flat, I think there was sound out in the streets, there was sound out in you know the other, other flats, but then coming down to Amanda's house, that's where the silence is. And that's really where I wanted to perhaps go more naturally silent than you would conventionally, perhaps you would. So there's, it, actually there's, there's just the distant sea, the sea sound and then the clock and then a bit of wind you hear from time to time. So, well, for me, yeah, the basic structure is there, but we're obviously within the mix. We worked on that quite a lot, actually. I think we're adding to and refining that, that all the way through, even though it seems quite a, a short amount of time we had. But mm. we, were, we, were, we were able to sort of have the luxury of coming back a little bit and doing some tweaks as well, which was good. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and, I, and I think in terms of sort of balancing, like, across the, the film, I mean, the, we, we were aware that it would be that it's obviously a big contrast between where the sound gets to in some of the more dynamic sequences and sort of how um, minimal and sort of subtle, I guess, things are in other ones, but that sort of fitted with the scenes and the, you know, we, it sort of made sense for what was going on around her. Like she's, in those scenes, she's in much busier, noisier sort of places. And um, yeah, it all felt fairly kind of fluid. But I think when you and me were working together, Paul, we just sort of passed we just sort of like play through the whole film and sort of stop and start every now and then. Yes, that's right. We, but that we, I mean, I think each time we sort of, you came down, we ran, we ran the whole film and we stopped and start, started. Yes, that's the way yeah. we ran. So we were, we were working not bit by bit. We were working holistically, <laughs> definitely across the whole, the whole film. Because that, that, for me, that's always important is the film has to have a unifying thread. Each sound has to be there for a reason. It's not just there because it's a cool sound. It's there because it's motivated and it relates to everything else around yeah. it so, yeah. Yeah. yeah as well and i guess throughout the film sort of fits with um with the shape of the narrative i guess it's just a sort of a slow creeping crawl and then a big some kind of awful escalation and explosion at the end yeah <laughs> yeah well the the i mean to refer to it as the escalation uh i've seen the film twice now and it and it got the right response twice without getting into spoilers um you know, in the dynamic of the later scenes and just kind of getting down to that point where you said, Paul, making things very quiet um, does really pay off when you have a moment that is supposed to startle people. It works for me, certainly. So, I'm really nervous about doing, doing any jump scares. I mean, there's not, we won't say where they are, there's not like tons, but no. the things that we've got seem to work pretty well. Oh, definitely. I think, I think, really, I think the, the key scenes at the end of the film, I think you've really got it bang on. You know, there's no, there's no kind of gratuitous tension. There's no kind of, you know, just hammering home a, a point just because you can and you want to frighten people. It really, like the scene in the bedroom, I think, and then you know the the kind of conclusion. Of it, I just wonderfully done. I think. Thank you. I love, I love how cryptic we have to be with this one. It's like, oh, the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you as well about? I, I love the use of diegetic music in the film. The actual kind of choices of the music. But the way the the way they kind of it sort of alters the scenes as well, you know, when you're in the house and it's quiet and then suddenly there's a bit of a party going on, even if only there's a couple of them in the room. And how kind of how conscious were your decisions on on the actual choice of the tracks? And is that something that evolved as well, or did you have that? Yeah, no. It, I mean, I think there were. I think only one of the track. I think one of the ES. There's a few ESG tracks. Yeah. Decided. Yeah. That, decided that was a band that Amanda liked, and um, yeah. One of those tracks was written into the script, the one where Maud's kind of spying on Amanda and her and her sort of girlfriend yeah. uh, dancing to this track. But apart from that, 
don't know, I don't think I did. But we're kind of trying out quite a few different things. I can't remember, Paul, how many of them were. I think most of them we'd probably decided by the time me and Mark probably put in the edits. I think all the tracks. Yeah, there's, we a, there's, an, yeah, there's a Gang of Four track in there, yeah. which is quite interesting yeah. in the party. There's, Al, there's an Al Bowley track, isn't there? So it, yes, it was. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think. I think and we, were thing, we only had one of their tracks in the in the script, but then our music supervisor sort of somehow found out there was some sort of deal where we could get. We were looking at two tracks, and they were like, "Oh, we can maybe give you three for two or something like this." So now there's. Oh, okay. Because uh, ever with ever ever with sort of like a lower budget film, the music budget is, is limited in terms of licensing tracks. That's always a. Yeah. You know. Bit of flexibility. Yeah. That's very important. <laughs> that flexibility. I think I mean, Adam composed a couple of the source tracks as well, didn't he? Yes. I think one of Amanda has a big sort of um, birthday party about halfway through the film with all of her kind of pretentious, bougie kind of friends coming mm. around. Um, and so there's a mixture of like a couple of tracks that Adam, I think, had maybe even yeah. written for like a commercial or something a year or two ago. Yes. And then a couple of tracks from a band that one of my friend's bands, like this Brighton-based punk band called Austerity. We've used about two of their tracks in it somewhere. I mean, to be honest, I mean, maybe some of the music, some of the sort of like punk rock in the background of Amanda's birthday party scene, every, sometimes when I watch it, I'm like, yeah, maybe that's not the, wasn't quite the right way to go. But I guess I just wanted to have slightly more playful, surprising kind of music cues where possible in terms of what the characters are actually listening to, like the actual diegetic stuff. Yeah. yeah. So that's why you've got sort of like Jesus lizard in the pub and things like that. It's <laughs> a bit more fun. I mean, because you, I mean, you said as well that there was a sort of five week sound edit, essentially. How and and there was you were you were in constant dialogue with the composer throughout that. Yes, I think so. Yes, I mean, in terms of yes, I mean, there was a, there was an exchange of music throughout that. Sort of different versions of the music came came were coming along during that period, and I think also there was a lot of there was quite a bit of use of music in the cut, as I said. So Adam supplied tracks during the. Um, during the edits, and then there was the, the music. More music came. So by the time we got to the mix, I think we were pretty sure about what the music would be. There, were, there weren't any. I don't think there were any surprises as such. You know that that thing which sometimes can happen. There was there was one. Yeah. There was one. There was sorry. I, <laughs> no, was I just a, no. It's but not nothing that um. It was it was me basic. I think at yeah we had all the music when we went into the main mix, and then afterwards I did the annoying thing of suddenly being like oh. Don't like this cue. There's one cue after there's a joke and then a cue. So the bit where Maud's kind of like, yes, and then the voice is like, I think it went well. Um, and then anyway, it's a music cue which sort of immediately comes after a little joke. And I just felt it just hadn't landed for some reason. And me and Adam were a bit stuck on the cue. And then he ended up uh nailing it and writing something. So then I had to go back to yeah. Paul. I think there was a there was advantage of working with Andrew Stirk with like a lot of Quite a number of people called Mrs. Has his own studio, and he was near yeah. We did a final mix in the Halo in, in Studio One there in Soho, and then we were able to come back and then to do some. We had you know the luxury of coming back and doing a sort of couple of more days updates after you know sort of after, after 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 we finished at Halo, so to tweak and then to have that luxury of you know sort of again refining the ideas, which is important because we only had five days final mix which actually in retrospect wasn't quite enough we we, we needed those extra days which was important just the time for reflection mm. me changing my mind all the time <laughs> well, that, that's that's your job <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, one of the lingering thought I had on the talking about diegetic music is um, uh, you definitely make the most of it because what I enjoy about the film is is all the perspectives we get on that um, because we hear a lot of music and crowd through walls and through other spaces. Mm. Um, so I was just wondering if that was ever something that kind of evolved in in the edit, the sound design and the mix. Um, whether you were making choices about when you hear music and when you don't. Well, I think, again, I think, that, I think that was always intentional, but I remember doing a lot of work in terms of music perspectives in the party and in Miranda's house as well, when we, she's spying on them as well, and where the music and how the music, you know, there's a lot of, quite a lot of work went on that to refine those ideas. I think they were, all, they were already there, the ideas were already there about how they would be played, but I think within limits, but I think then we did explore that more, didn't we? About yeah, perspectives about particularly in Maud's apartment though you, you were sort of talking a bit about it earlier but um but uh because because that stuff I think we me and Mark hadn't done so much but sort of mu what music she's hearing from the neighbors um when and all of that obviously just helps to make her seem even more sort of isolated in her own mm. that if you hear someone else having a party next door um so yeah I remember particularly when what after she'd been fired from Amanda's house and particularly sort of just in that bit there sort of playing a little bit with um, whether or not to hear music and the opening scene like her in her little bedsit before she goes to Amanda's house playing with whether to hear music or voices through the walls and how mm. that affects it um, On a totally different subject uh, or different element of the film something that's kind of stuck with me the first time and I'd just be really interested to know but there's kind of a motif in the film with clicking that jumps out to me like uh, the lighter appears quite early on and then later uh, in an angry scene in the kitchen when the kettle's boiling, Maud is clicking her nails together. And that has some relevance to the final shot as well. So I was just kind of wondering if you could talk about that a bit, whether it's just me imagining something or if that was always part of the script. But, well, the lighters were, were definitely, they, they originally were more of a motif as in in the cut. We did shoot a lot more close-ups of lighters. And it, it, I mean, people smoke a lot throughout the film and it was going to be that every time somebody lit a cigarette, you're going to get like a massive close-up of the end of it. So some of that came from there. And then I guess in, in terms of the nails, that wasn't like a conscious sort of connection, I guess, sonically. But you're right, they do have the same kind of feel. And I guess, broadly speaking, across the film, one of my favourite sort of like um, characteristics of it, I guess, is the sort of the kind of clicky, tactile, poking, prodding, clicky kind of noises because it just sort of sets your teeth on edge a little bit and... mm. yeah sure yeah the overall feel of unease was i guess intended but maybe specifically clicking i don't know although a couple of adam's cues as well actually are very sort of percussive and kind of they've got these weird little so yeah there's a lot of yeah kind of clicky sounds it did have definitely had an effect it resonated and in particular in one of the final shots of the film there is a very distinct click where which is a justification for a real switch of perspective. And, and that's where it kind of really like felt like it was, you know, it all came to a head and it all felt like it was kind of queuing up to that moment. Um, so, yeah, I just wondered, again, if you, could, if you could maybe talk about that, that last scene, trying to stay away from spoilers, obviously, but there must have been real decisions made about what you'll hear and when. And um, did that come together very quickly for you or was that more of a trial and error process as well? Um... I think that was more the, the the idea, basic structure of what was going to happen there was there, but I think we took quite a bit of work to get to there in terms of 
the vortex that opens up, the vo recording the voices, how they were going to react. Because they came, they came quite lately you know, to do the crowd recording session, and then the actual quite shape of the event itself, because it starts off. It, when it starts off, it starts off, you know, we have the lighter, click of the lighter, then the way it happens is not naturalistic, and then we come... The, so I think the end, the surprise, or the dynamics in it were, were clear, but I think, again, it, was a, it took a while, so there was a lot, quite a bit of work to get the shape of that correct. Mm. That event we, correct. I don't know how these things work. I think if we've said spoiler enough, we can talk. Yeah. yeah. So basically, so the bit, which assuming you've seen if you're still listening we don't mind being spoiled like obviously there's this very subjective dream sort of moment at the end uh Maud sets herself on fire and the lead up to it this and the event obviously is super stylized and like Paul said sound wise it kind of everything goes into a sort of vortex of being inside her own head and then then we have that obviously very abrupt uh switch to the real life um burning at the end so yeah the shape of it was there but um yeah like you said my main memory of of working on that with well watching both you and Andrew work on that was that seemed like the most sort of like sculpted sculpture kind of bit I guess because it's quite a tricky transition isn't it yeah, becoming sort of really her 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 perspective on on what's happening and then we're finished with the real perspective which is the moment of horror when yeah. the audience is jolted out not because it's not just a jump scare but they realize oh that that is the that this is reality it's not this wonderful yeah. heavenly reality which is ascending, transcending into a, another plane, spiritual plane. This is the actual horror. And I, that I, moment is, yeah, it's tricky. It took a lot of refinement to get that working, I think. Yeah, it's quite satisfying now, so yeah. coming and watching it in the screening. But, um, but I remember the, but, but doing the, the, the section before that, the more kind of fantastical moment where she is on fire but you know it's these dreamy imaginary flames and everybody starts kneeling in front of her mm. we had quite a lot of elements in there of you know stylized yeah. abstract-ish flamish noises but i do remember that which sounded sounded very which sounded great but in terms of making it a really jarring contrast with that last flash i think we ended up raining some of the more yes we, we, we actually we, we thinned it out didn't we and went yeah. down I think we ended up going with something that was quite stylized and synthetic. I think one thing for this film, and each film had its own, for me, had its own demands and requirements. And I saw that there was going to be a space in this for using, you know, talking about, you know, the high frequency sound we referred to earlier on. There's quite a lot of electronic elements within the sound design. So it's not purely sort of, I mean, contrasting with the Foley, the more nat other natural elements in the film. So the, the moments in the, in the supernatural events or the, subjective events whichever way you want to describe it i think there are quite a lot of use of electronics hopefully an organic way not not too yeah. obtrusive way but i think that that flame sound what and i can't quite remember how i did achieve that but is um i think is is some sort of electronic sort of processing or than that and I, I think that there was other probably other more natural elements around it which you say which more flame like which you you took back and were quite right to sort of make it a more transcendent moment. Yeah. And it, and just because also it, it just sort of makes even more exaggerated the sort of contrast between that and, and the end. But it's true about the about what you're saying about the electronic sort of quality and a, a lot of Adam's score had that kind of element as well. There's there's very few cues in the film or, or sound elements which are 
you know classical or this kind of thing i think he did sort of it, there's a lot of you know weird drones and percussive stuff. And, and i think a lot of you know my sound is and adam's music blur into one and actually i mm. saw a screening quite recently there was a sort of during there was a screening in end in october i think and i saw it you know with rose a bit of a cast and crew screening and yeah. um, by that time i forgot is that me or is that adam i can't <laughs> tell where the boundaries are anymore and i think that's always an interesting area within yeah. film you know i can't quite remember now Back, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, it certainly all ties together. I mean, one of the things I love about the film is that that final shot feels the perfect length for me. You know, and that's a it's a very short, it's almost subliminal, but it's just enough to really kind of carry across. So yeah, all those elements working together make that. Well, I really hope you get another run in the in the theatres with St. Maud after this. Yes, it'd be wonderful. It really deserves to be seen. Fingers crossed. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll look forward to seeing uh, future projects as well. Yeah, it was nice to talk to you guys. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah no, thank you. Great. Thank you, Rose, so much. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. It's been a great chat. So the sound that you've just listened to after the end of that interview is another excerpt from the sound design of St Maud, which Paul Davis has very generously given us uh, for this podcast. Um, and that's the sound that Paul and Rose actually discuss working on during the course of the sound design on the film, where they try and find something really discomforting for Maud. Yeah, really interesting sounds and great to have them for this podcast. So we'd just like to take the opportunity to thank Paul Davis again for supplying these sounds for us and just generally being supportive and helping us to make this interview happen. And also to Rose Glass. Um, thank you, Rose, for taking the time to speak to us today and speak with Paul with us. That was really great to be a part of. And also Studio Canal, who were really supportive and helpful in making this episode happen the way it did. So thank you to you. Yeah. Now, we should also credit some of the other crew who were key to producing St Maud. So we'll start with the producers, which were Andrew Cornwell and Oliver Cassman. The picture editor was Mark Towns. And the composer, whose name I'm going to try and pronounce, is Adam Yonota Basowski. And apologies, Adam, if I've got that wrong. Yeah, and also from the production sound team, uh, there was production sound mixer Simon Farmer, who uh, was joined by the first assistant sound, Andrew Jones and Adam Williams as second assistant sound, and also Adam Clayton Williams as first assistant sound and additional photography. Also in post-production sound, Andrew Stirk was the dialogue editor and re-recording mixer, Ben Cross was the Foley mixer, and Ian Waggett was the Foley artist for the film. Yeah, congratulations to all of you for some excellent work. Uh, now, for those of you listening to the podcast who are working in sound or hope to make a career in sound, then AMP's membership is open to those working in sound for film, TV and games, as well as students who intend to make it their profession. So if you'd like more information about AMP's and how you can become a member, you can visit amps.net. Yeah, and if you have some ideas for the AMP's podcast or you want to take part and uh, help us to make the next episode happen, you can contact us via Twitter at, at @ampspodcast or via email at ampspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, maybe just tweet us a picture of your cat or what you had for dinner. Yeah, we'll take anything you got. So we'll end this podcast now with one final excerpt from Paul Davis's sound design to St Maud. 